0: Um, So thank you guys again for coming for the DC5 lecture series. I hope that you're enjoying them as much as I am. Um, We've transitioned from our sort of cardiovascular unit now into our respiratory unit. um, And we're gonna kick off that lecture with a lecture from Dr. Shaw. Um, Nirav Shaw is Associate Professor of Medicine here at University of Maryland. Um, He sort of leads and spearheads our pulmonary and critical care and IP fellowship programs. It is a pleasure to introduce him today um, speaking on hypoxemia. So without further ado, Dr. Shaw, go ahead and take it away. Great, thank you so much, Andy. Um, thank you all for having me here today. I'm I excited to see so many friends on this call, and and um, and you know, hopefully today um, you'll realize that that this is really, in my mind, a review um, over over kind of the the information that I think all of us learned at some point, but may have forgotten at different points, and um, and I'm hoping to bring it back up to the forefront of your memory with this talk on hypoxemia. Um, I'd like to, before I start, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Nevins Todd. So over the last, I don't know, 15 or 16 years um, in conversations on a, on a fairly regular, almost daily basis with Dr. Todd, I've learned a lot of um, physiology and I've also um, borrowed some, some images from him. So I'll uh, give him credit as well for that. Um, I'm going to start with just a brief case presentation. So an 82-year-old male, 10-day history of cough, fever, chills, now with progressively increasing shortness of breath over a few days, history of prostate cancer, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. You can see the vital signs here of note. The patient is slightly tachycardic, tachypneic, febrile, and is satting 85% on room air with a leukocytosis here. Uh, on imaging, you can see, um, and I put a, a, a normal x-ray as well as our patient's x-ray um, kind of side by side, you can see that, that you know, if I asked all of you what, what's going on here, you can see that the abnormality is on the right side, um, a consolidation as well as maybe some haziness, um, uh, hazy opacities in the, in the right lower lung zone. Um, and this patient's diagnosis um, was community-acquired pneumonia, it started on supplemental oxygen, um, antibiotics, for receptraxin, and azithro. But on hospital day two, he had worsening shortness of breath and hypoxia or hypoxemia, increased white blood cell count with 18% bandemia. He was placed on a non-rebreather and transferred to the MICU and intubated. And when I sh- looked at his data, he had a pH of 7.4, PCO2 of 38, a PAO2 of 65. He was on volume control, 14, 450, 60% of 2 and plus 8 of PEEP. And, and in thinking about kind of what happened over this, over this period, you know, what's his diagnosis? Is it really community-acquired pneumonia? Um, why did he get sick so fast? Why is he so hypoxemic and, and what's his AA gradient? I would reflect that thinking back, um, I would hope that, that um, a lot of you can, can go back and, and calculate his AA gradient, but the reality is, is that not everyone remembers all of the formulas and all of the, the thought that goes behind why um, someone's AA gradient uh, may be abnormal. Um, And so this talk is is really kind of focused on on thinking about these problems. So he he was a a patient with community-acquired pneumonia, but his problem really was acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. And so our plan was to give him broad-spectrum antibiotics and then taper them down, um, start him on mechanical ventilation and supportive care, avoid injury from the ventilator, extubate him as soon as possible, and and tailor um, his antibiotics to to what they need to be. Um, this is the book. Um, I hope all of you have it. I hope that all of you have read it. I hope all of you have read it multiple times. Um, I don't think it matters if you're a pulmonologist, um, or a critical care doc that's a pulmonary trained person or an EM trained person or an anesthesia trained person or a neurotrained person. I think that respiratory physiology is central to what we do as critical care docs. And, And so I think that this is, um, the book that, that is the, um, gold standard for that. And on the first page of West in chapter one, it says the lung is for gas exchange. And so thinking about one of those gases um, is what the center of this, this talk today is. So, just to clear up some definitions, um, although the terms hypoxia and hypoxemia are often used interchangeably, they're not synonymous, right? Hypoxemia is defined as a condition where arterial oxygen tension is below normal. Um, Hypoxia is defined as the failure of oxygenation at the tissue level. It's not measured by a direct lab value, although some could argue that an increased arterial lactate um, accompanies tissue hypoxia. Um, Hypoxia and hypoxemia may or may not occur together, and I hope that over the course of this conversation um, that'll that'll be clearer. And, and generally, the presence of hypoxemia will suggest hypoxia. However, hypoxia may not be present in patients with hypoxemia if the patient compensates for a low arterial O2 by increasing their oxygen delivery, which we're going to talk about. This can be achieved by increasing cardiac output or decreasing tissue oxygen consumption. Conversely, Patients who are not hypoxemic might be hypoxic if oxygen delivery to tissues is impaired or if the tissues are unable to see oxygen effectively. So nevertheless, hypoxemia is by far the most common cause of tissue hypoxia. And then anoxia is an absence of oxygen supply despite adequate blood flow. So oftentimes, you'll hear these terms interchanged with hypoxia and hypoxemia, but I would say that we should be a little bit deliberate about how we use these terms. So a lot of this, as I said, is review. And, and this is, um, I was rounding this morning with our pulmonary consult team. We were talking a little bit about, um, about this, this, this idea of pulmonary physiology. And um, I see that Dr. Lee is on this call as well. And, and so we're involved in a project that's basically looking at um, physiology concepts. And, and, and to not give away the punchline, but give away the punchline, it's that we all have decay of knowledge over time. And if you think about what you learned as a medical student and how much of that you retain as a critical care fellow, um, it goes down significantly, but it doesn't take much. It's going to take this next 45 minutes to bring you back up to speed um, to to where we are from from the perspective of um, how much do I need to know from the physiology standpoint to fully understand hypoxemia. So oxygen, as you all know, is carried in two forms in the blood. And so I hope you'll forgive me for anything that's too simplistic for you, but I think it's good to start kind of at the ground and, and build up again. Um, it's dissolved O2 gas and plasma, and then O2 molecules that are bound to hemoglobin. And as you all might remember, um, thinking about where um, the hemoglobin, um, how the hemoglobin is configured, it can carry four molecules of oxygen and both can be expressed as a concentration. And we come up with the total oxygen content in blood by adding these two numbers together. And so when we think about that, CaO2 or the content, oxygen content, is going to be expressed in milliliters of oxygen per deciliter of blood. And this is going to be O2 bound to hemoglobin plus O2 that's dissolved. And so the equation is is here for content, right? The hemoglobin times 1.34 mLs of oxygen um, um, that each hemoglobin can carry times the oxygen saturation of hemoglobin plus what's dissolved, so 0.003 milliliters of oxygen per deciliter of blood times the PaO2. So if you think about a normal hemoglobin of 15 grams per deciliter, the oxygen binding capacity would be around 20 milliliters of oxygen per deciliter. And if you calculated the, the a, a normal PaO2 of 100 and multiplied that by 0.003, you can see that the, the contribution of dissolved um, oxygen is minimal. So you would get 20.3 basically for the content here for total oxygen content. When we think about oxygen delivery, we're going to be thinking about the DO2 is equal to the cardiac output times the the content of oxygen. And so you multiply that whole equation by cardiac output, and that's going to give you oxygen delivery. And what's important is for us to remember arterial oxygen content versus delivery because and I borrowed this from Dr. Lee from years and years and years ago. Um, This is a a table that basically shows you that just changing the PaO2 and making your patient less hypoxemic by going from a PaO2 to 40 to 53 only changes your oxygen delivery from 28.3 to 31 milliliters per minute. But if you changed cardiac output or hemoglobin, which are going to be um, going from 3 to 4 or 9 to 12, you can change that oxygen delivery more dramatically. So it's important to keep this concept in mind of PaO2 versus oxygen delivery. And we can't talk about any of this without thinking about the oxygen dissociation curve, right? So as we think about the oxygen dissociation curve, this curve shows us the relationship between how much oxygen gas is dissolved in plasma. And you can see here on the graph, the dotted line at the bottom here of dissolved O2, and the pO2 in millimeters of mercury, with the y-axis on the left being percent hemoglobin saturation and the y-axis on the right being O2 concentration, just expressed in different ways. But you can see here that what's combined with hemoglobin is your main contributor um, in terms of O2 concentration. And we're going to come back to this oxygen dissociation curve in the future as we think about um, what an acceptable PaO2 or SpO2 is, because this is going to be really, really important as we think about taking care of patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure. In addition, as we think about O2 delivery, we need to think about what the tissues are doing in terms of O2 consumption. And so O2 delivery, what you breathe in through your um, uh, tracheobronchial tree into the alveoli, is then going to be exchanged with the capillary. And so you start out with mixed venous blood, and you'll end up with, at the end of this, you'll end up with what what should look like a a normal arterial blood gas sample with a PO2 of 100 and a PCO2 of 40. And then as that goes to the tissues, the tissues are going to extract oxygen. They're going to put CO2 back into that um, blood circulation, and then that's going to become your mixed venous sample as you think about um, the The consumption of oxygen. So O2 delivery is going to be delivering oxygen to the tissues every minute, so cardiac output multiplied by the total concentration, and then O2 consumption is what is consumed by the tissue every minute, and the normal value for that is about 250 milliliters per minute. So when we think about the five causes of hypoxemia, we're going to spend a little bit of time going through each of these causes. So we think about hypoventilation, a diffusion limitation, shunt physiology, ventilation perfusion mismatch, and a low PIO2. And we'll talk about each of these, as I mentioned. So when we first talk about hypoventilation, we all need a certain amount of alveolar ventilation to bring oxygen molecules in and replenish that which is being consumed, right? And the alveolar ventilation is the ao 2 And we quantify that by using the alveolar gas equation. And so what's important to kind of think about this is that as we breathe in, we're going to breathe in air, that's going to be our PIO2, it's going to go in here, and we're going to, using the alveolar gas equation, determine what the P big A O2 is. And if we were going to think about the AA gradient, this would be the P big A O2 minus the P little A O2, which we get from getting a blood sample from, from an artery, in this case, in this picture, the radial artery. And so the alveolar gas equation, I want you all to remember this alveolar gas equation, um, because there are five variables that are going to play a role in, with the, in, in how we kind of calculate what the P big A or P alveolar O2 is. And so the first are variables that are in the PIO2 or the inspired Um, air, and that's going to be the FiO2, or the fractional concentration of oxygen, which all of us currently um, are are breathing 21% room air, right? It's going to take into account the barometric pressure. So at sea level, we're 760 millimeters of mercury minus water vapor pressure, which is going to be 47. So we're going to end up with our 760 minus 47 times the FiO2, which will give us our P-inspired O2. And then the other variables are going to be related to the P big A CO2, which if you think about kind of how we we interchange these, the the alveolar um, and the arterial CO2, you're going to basically take the alveolar ventilation equation, which is going to be CO2 production divided by alveolar ventilation times a constant, and that's going to give us the number that we're going to use here. And that's going to be divided by our respiratory quotient, which we often use 0.8 as that number. So as you can see in in hypoventilation, your alveolar ventilation is going to go down. And if your alveolar ventilation goes down, your P little a CO2 is going to go up, and that's going to be a number that's going to be used here. And so if that number goes up and your PIO2 hasn't changed, then your P alveolar oxygen level is going to be lower and so hypoventilation is going to result in a lower P big aO2 and so thinking about hypoventilation there are some clinical scenarios that we all see in the ICU so neurologic insult for example or brainstem stroke um, medications or drugs either intentional or accidental most most commonly opioids and benzodiazepines hypocapnia itself is the primary driver for for hyper um, Hypocapnia then results in hyperventilation um, uh, or hypo, I'm sorry, hypoventilation to drive that CO2 up. Obesity can result in obesity hypoventilation syndrome, and then chronic mountain sickness can be in this causes, in one of these causes of hypoventilation as well. So hypoventilation is the first reason for hypoxemia, um, and, and you should keep these clinical scenarios in mind as you think about that. Then we come to diffusion limitation. This is where oxygen does not equilibrate by the time blood reaches the end of the capillary. And so my outpatient um, primary specialty is interstitial lung disease, and we deal a lot with diffusion limitation in patients with interstitial lung disease. And so as we think about interstitial lung disease um, and diff- diffusion, we have to remember Fick's law of diffusion. And so you can see here that, the, um, that, that we're looking at the area, um, the thickness the diffusion constant, and then the change in pressure P1 minus P2. And D, or the diffusion content, is based on solubility divided by the square root of the molecular weight of the gas. And so for your reference, CO2 is slightly larger molecular weight than oxygen, but it's way more soluble. In fact, it, it diffuses 25 times faster through tissue than oxygen does. And so because of its um, solubility, um, even though it's a bigger molecular weight, it's going to have a much faster diffusion. And so thinking about how gas diffuses through tissue is important as we think about oxygen getting to the tissue and being able to be extracted. And so when we think about diffusion of oxygen across the blood gas barrier, we have to remember that at rest, the PO2 of blood virtually reaches that of the alveolar gas after a third of its time in the capillary. Um, Blood spends only about three-fourths of a second in the capillary at rest. And during exercise, this is reduced to about a quarter of a second. And the diffusion process is challenged by exercise, alveolar hypoxemia, and thickening of the blood gas barrier. And so I want to show you this graph from West. That basically helps explain, and 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 yesterday when we were rounding on our on one of our ILD patients, we drew this on the on the window as we were talking about what happens to this patient when they when they move around. But you can see here that PO2, so that's on the y-axis, and time is on the x-axis. You can see here that we start with some mixed venous um, oxygen level, right? And as we take a breath in, we quick, we quickly um achieve within about a quarter of a second, really. We quickly achieve um, that amount of oxygen going from the from the um, alveolus to the capillary. And so now all of our hemoglobin is loaded up um, within a quarter of a second. And you can see here that the um that the patient for about seconds um, really is not having gas exchange occur because all of it happened in this first part right here. So when this happens, you can see at the end that the alveolar and the um, um, capillary gases are equilibrated. And so this would mean that oxygen at this point is perfusion limited. But in a patient with abnormal lungs, Um, For various reasons, which we'll talk about in a second, but abnormal lungs that have a diffusion problem, you can see here that the slope of this curve is dramatically changed and it takes almost the full three quarters of a second in this patient's abnormal lungs to equilibrate what's in the capillary with what's in the alveoli, but they still equilibrate. And so in this patient, this patient still would be a perfusion limitation. Now, in someone like our patient who had grossly abnormal lungs due to interstitial lung disease, that patient, you can see here that as they move, as the blood moves through the capillary, it never equilibrates with what's in the alveoli. There's this gap here. And because of that, this gap is present. This patient now has a diffusion limitation. So oxygen can be both diffusion and perfusion limited. The other thing that I want to mention is this concept of exercise. Because as you think about exercise, what you're doing is you're reducing, you're increasing your heart rate. So as your heart rate goes up, your time in the, in the capillary for your blood goes down from 0.75 seconds to 0.25 seconds. So now this person who has abnormal lungs is in the same predicament as the person with grossly abnormal lungs because at the end of 0.25 seconds, there is not equilibration between the alveolar and the capillary gas. And this patient now has a diffusion limitation, and you'll see that a patient with um, interstitial lung disease, for example, as they exercise, are going to drop their SATs pretty rapidly, and they're going to need more supplemental oxygen, um, and it might take a little bit longer for them to to get back up to baseline when they stop. And so when we think about the pathological conditions associated with the diffusion limitation, kind of the prototypical ones are going to be emphysema with destruction of alveoli that, that markedly reduces the surface area for gas exchange, and then pulmonary fibrosis, which results in thickened interstitium, resulting in not enough time for gas exchange. The other illness that that you might think of in here is also um, pulmonary hypertension or pulmonary vascular disease with a thickened capillary, where the time required to get from the alveoli to the capillary is increased. And so again, you start to get this diffusion limitation. That brings us to our third probably and most common reason for hypoxemia, and that's ventilation-perfusion mismatch. So this is where there's an imbalance between total lung ventilation, or airflow, and total lung perfusion, or blood flow. And this is characterized often by an increased AA gradient, and as I mentioned, this is the most common cause of hypoxemia. And when we think about what this looks like, we're going to see that there's a difference here between um, and, and basically a... a a normal low and high VQ units. And so the way that I like to illustrate this is by thinking about this, looking at these pictures that I borrowed from from Nevins, and that's looking at this patient with a Dense consolidation on the right side, but if you look at their um, their minups here, you can see that their um, sorry about that arrow that's that's uh, going crazy on the screen here. You can see that their vasculature has no problem at all, and so this person has low BQ ratio. As you go from this alveoli uh, that's normal and capillary exchange is normal, where there's no problem and the VQ is one-to-one, you get closer and closer to this where you get shunt physiology where the VQ goes from, um, from closer and closer to zero and almost to zero where you get shunt, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And when we think about that clinical scenario, we're thinking about things like pneumonia or anything that can fill the alveolar space like pulmonary edema, um, a mucus plug, small airway edema, or, or collapse of the of the um, uh, lobe, lobe or segment, um, resulting in atelectasis. And ultimately, the treatment for this low VQ um, scenario is going to be to treat the underlying cause, provide supplemental oxygen. If they are requiring um, their basically their minute ventilation to go up to account for this. Um, VQ mismatch, then they might start to get tired. You might need to consider, depending on the etiology, non-invasive or mechanical ventilation. And then when we get to areas of high VQ ratio, we're talking about areas where the the ventilation is not an issue at all, but you can see here on this image, there's a a blood clot here in the pulmonary um, artery, which results in high VQ ratios, as you can see right here. And so the clinical scenarios as we think about this are going to be things like pulmonary embolism or emphysema, where there's a large amount of ventilation with a small amount of perfusion. So the perfusion didn't necessarily change, but the amount of ventilation did as you get this big bolus disease that results in, um, in, uh, in, in the, the perfusion of that alveoli being really kind of limited compared to what it would be for a normal Um, for a normal alveoli. And again, for high BQ um, diseases, we're going to treat the underlying cause. We're going to provide some normal oxygen. Um, These patients are going to get either Heparin. They're going to get thrombectomies. They're going to get um, uh, lytics. Whatever you decide is the is the right way to treat this patient. And then you you can go on to depending on the cause of the the problem here. If it was emphysema, for example, maybe non invasive ventilation would work. Or if they were hypoxemic to the point, and it was a it was a pulmonary embolism, then they probably would need mechanical ventilation because non invasive wouldn't be indicated there. This brings us to the to the next cause of hypoxemia, and that's going to be shunt physiology. Um, This is where the VQ is zero. And in this case, it doesn't really matter how much oxygen supplementally you give a patient because the O2 isn't really going to change here because you can't get that oxygen in, right? So in a low VQ situation, this is not completely occluded. So you can give supplemental oxygen and get this patient's O2 up to be able to get the mixed venous PAO2 or the mixed venous O2 to get to be unloaded with oxygen and get a a better PAO2. But in a complete shunt physiology, as you all know, um, prototypically ARDS, for example, um, giving them just supplemental oxygen isn't going to help this because you can't get the the alveolar O2 up higher than, than what was already in the mixed venous amount, right? So this is a situation where you cannot correct hypoxemia with supplemental oxygen. So that brings us to the AA gradient. And, and this is something important. I I can't tell all of you how many times I've been on rounds where I've said, Hey, let's, let's figure out this patient's AA gradient. and, And I get a bunch of blank stares, right? So we have to, as critical care docs, be able to calculate the AA gradient. So that's the P alveolar O2 minus the P arterial O2. And a normal number is about 10 to 20. You'll hear oftentimes this this idea of age divided by four. Um, And what's important is thinking about kind of whether this is normal and what the actual numbers are. So a normal AA gradient means that you have normal diffusion and normal VQ relationships as long as both the alveolar and arterial values are normal. But if you have a normal AA gradient where the alveolar and arterial numbers are individually low, that's where you start to think of maybe the cause of of this patient's um, uh, um, issue with hypoxemia is a low PIO2 or hypoventilation. And then the kind of situation that you are most commonly familiar with, which is where the AA gradient is elevated, um, that's going to be a direct result of a diffusion abnormality, a low VQ, and or shunt physiology. So thinking about types of respiratory failure and how this plays into our clinical um, scenarios, uh, we have these four types of of respiratory failure. Hypoxemic, type 1 respiratory failure, a problem with oxygenation. Type 2, or hypercapnic, respiratory failure, this is a problem with ventilation. Type 3, where we often see patients in, in the ICU that have a mixed hypoxemic and hypercapnic respiratory failure, and then type 4, where there's shock with hypoperfusion. And as we think about respiratory failure, in addition to categorizing it as a type 1, type 2, type 3, or type 4, the other thing we want to do is characterize it as acute or chronic. And acute develops over minutes to hours with life-threatening derangements in ABG as an asset-based status, whereas chronic develops over days or longer, allows time for compensation, and the manifestations are often less dramatic. And so as we think about respiratory failure and what we see in the ICU, we think about the epidemiology with about 360,000 cases per year in the U.S., a mortality of about 36% in hospital. And then the morbidity and mortality, as we've all seen over the last couple of years, definitely increases with age and comorbidities. And so it's important to kind of think about um, the pathophysiology and what's causing it. And it really can be any abnormality in the airways, the alveoli, your, um, your nervous system, so your CNS or your PNS, Um, respiratory muscle weakness and chest wall deformities can all contribute. And when we think about respiratory failure, basically your ventilatory capacity has to be well above, and it is for all of us here on this call, it's way above what the ventilatory demand is. And when you think about getting a cardiopulmonary exercise test, we all have plenty of reserve in our ventilatory system or our respiratory system, we are all cardiovascularly limited in our ability to exercise, right? We are not ventilatory limited. Respiratory failure happens when the ventilatory demand exceeds the ventilatory capacity. So as we think about common etiologies of hypoxemic respiratory failure, things that, that we see routinely in the ICU, pneumonia, pulmonary edema, asthma, PE, ARDS, interstitial lung disease or pulmonary fibrosis, pneumothoraces, and COPD. These are things that we want to keep in mind because how we treat these individuals is going to be related to what the etiology is and what the pathophysiology is. And so as we treat them with supplemental oxygen, we're going to go from non-invasive all the way to, to invasive mechanical ventilation. And we're going to want to keep in mind that our goal SpO2 and PaO2 are going to be dependent on the concepts that we talked about earlier with the oxygen dissociation curve. And so the shape of this oxygen dissociation curve is really, really important um, because we don't really want to be on this dramatically steep portion where a small change in PaO2 might drop us dramatically down in terms of hemoglobin saturation or vice versa. So for example, if we look at this slide here, I really want to be on this curve from here over. But at the same time, you can see that if you go from a PaO2 of 60 all the way up to a PaO2 of 600, you're not getting a dramatic difference in your um, percent hemoglobin saturation because of the shape of this curve, right? And so the importance here is to remember that I don't really want to be... Um, much outside of my sweet spot here of 60 to 80 for my PaO2, because if I go higher, I'm going to buy myself some ventilator-induced lung injury, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, And if I go lower, I'm going to drop down on the hemoglobin, um, uh, the oxygen dissociation curve, and I'm going to drop down with my hemoglobin saturation dramatically from a PO2 of sixty, where I might be in the ninety percent range, to if I just go to a PO2 of fifty, I might be in the sixty to seventy percent range. Right, so this is really important to think about, and and dissolved oxygen here you can see is not the main contributor as we talked about earlier. It's going to be what's combined with hemoglobin. So let's go into a a case presentation here, and then we'll we'll kind of highlight some some other um, points that we want to think about. So this is a 25-year-old male, status post a motor vehicle crash at high speed, um, who was found unconscious at the scene with a GCS of three. He regained consciousness and route to the ED and was found to have bilateral femur fractures, rib fractures, and the pulmonary contusion on the right. He was stabilized and went to the OR for fracture repair, and then he was sent to the multi-trauma ICU for further management. And you can see his, his chest X-ray right here, multiple rib fractures. You can see some sub-Q air here. Um, this patient is intubated and doesn't, based on this imaging, um, things are probably not going to look so awesome right away. His ventilator settings on arrival to you are SIMB 2600-105. So you can already see that this was probably set in the operating room and then left on as, as the patient arrived to the, to the multi trauma ICU. He appeared to still have neuromuscular blockade on board from the OR. He was five foot nine inches tall. His vital signs are shown here, tachycardic and regular. Um, he's uh, breathing right with the ventilator at 20 and his oxygen saturation is 94%. And you can see here his gas is 7, 4, 8, 50 to 20. Actually that, that's probably an error right there. That's probably incorrect. Um, uh, Seven four eight fifty two twenty um, doesn't make a lot of sense there, but focus here on the um, on the fifty and the two twenty um, as we think about what to do now. So, as you all take a minute to to or, or twenty seconds to think about what are you going to do now, um, think about the ventilator, think about what we're going to do for the patient, mm-hmm. think about what that gas looked like in terms of the CO two and the um, and the PaO two and what the patient's vital signs look like. Um, and then as we, as we think about this, um, one of the things that I like to think about is what kind of respiratory failure does this patient have? And so interestingly, I would say that this patient has type 1 acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, even though that PaO2 was 220, because that was on 100% FiO2, right? And so that leads me into this question of, of let me think about what his AA gradient is. And as I think about that, I'm going to plug this into our um, equation to get the P, big AO2. I need the PiO2, so that's 760 minus 47 times the FiO2, which was 100% or 1, minus the PCO2, which was 50, divided by the R.8, gives us a P alveolar O2 of 650.5. And if we subtract the P8, P arterial O2, we're going to get an A gradient of 430.5. So A here, the big A, is much higher than the little a. So this must be related to a diffusion abnormality, a VQ mismatch, or shunt physiology. And so thinking about this patient with the contusion and the right-sided opacities, Um, and the rib fractures, I'm going to think that this patient is is likely having um, a combination of some of the stuff, but a VQ mismatch for sure, and potentially even some diffusion abnormality if stuff is filling the alveoli in terms of the contusion. So how would you treat him? So think about this for a second. Um, Let me um, see if if, if you all agree with me. Um, I would say that the first thing I want to do is just the ventilator mode. I don't like SIMB in this patient. Um, I don't like SIMB in general, quite honestly, but, um, but in this patient for sure, um, SIMB, I would switch to a, um, a, a volume control mode um, where I can control the tidal volume and um, make sure that I'm giving the same tidal volume for every breath that the patient gets as he wakes up. Um, I'm going to also want to decrease that FiO2 with a PaO2 of 220. I really don't need an FiO2 of 100%. I'm going to treat the underlying cause. I want to minimize oxygen demand. I want to prevent ventilator-induced lung injury. And if he remains hypoxemic, I'm going to consider additional therapies. And so I want to talk about some of these things now for the, for the last part of this talk and then open it up to, to questions and thoughts and comments. So this is one of my favorite pictures um, that I like to, to, to quiz folks on. And that's what are the types of ventilator-induced lung injury? In this patient's case, um, one of the, and, and, and kind of in, in talking to all of you today about hypoxemia, one of the ones that I want to focus on mainly is this idea of oxygen toxicity. And if we give a patient too much oxygen, um, we can create free radical um, uh, species here, oxygen species, reactive oxygen species, that can cause harm to the lung. And when we think about the association, and this was Everett de Young that published in 2008... Um, The association between administered oxygen and looking at the um, mortality rate, you can see here that as the FiO2 was low, um, less than 30%, the mortality rate was low. And as as you increased it um, to above 60%, the mortality rate went up. And importantly, there's this U-shaped curve for the PAO2 that DeYoung and colleagues um, published about showing that basically with a PAO2 level that is um, that you have this U-shaped curve that initially your average hospital mortality is in this point. range, 0.4 to 0.5 range, Um, and then it goes down as your PaO2 goes up, and this is in a different unit scale here, which is why that looks like that, and then as your PaO2 value increases, you have, it's much more scattered here, but the curve shows that there's increased mortality as the PaO2 goes up. In addition, Sophie Six and colleagues published in Critical Care in December 2016, looking at hyperoxemia as a result for VAP, Um, And they showed that if the number of days with a PO2 greater than 120 increased, so in the patient in the VAP group, they had about five days versus three days, that those patients with hyperoxemia were more likely to develop a ventilator-associated pneumonia. And as the number of days increased the incidence or percentage of ventilator-associated pneumonia went up as well, kind of resulting in this, in this milieu where potentially bacteria had a, had a chance to, um, to thrive with the uh, higher oxygen levels. The other thing that we want to think about as we take care of patients with hypoxemia is that not only do we want to provide them with supplemental oxygen, but it's also our job to minimize their oxygen demand. So in a lot of our patients, they have fever. So treating their fever, um, preventing hyperthermia, um, critical care patients in the neuro ICU, for example, um, hyperthermia has been shown to be incredibly harmful. If we're using treatments, um, like neuromuscular blockade to help with patient ventilator synchrony and to reduce ventilator-induced lung injury and to treat our patients with ARDS, for example. We want to make sure we eliminate shivering because that'll increase your oxygen demand. We want to make sure we're using adequate sedation and using proper ventilator settings to increase the patient ventilator synchrony to decrease how much oxygen is being consumed by the, by the tissues. If after all of that, we have refractory hypoxemia, then we start thinking about additional therapies, things like inhaled vasodilators or prone physician ventilation, and then ECMO, which you're going to get um, plenty of conversation on over the course of the year and curriculum about ECMO. So I, I briefly wanted to talk about um, inhaled vasodilator and what the re- re- vasodilators and what the rationale was. Um, so in in a in patients with refractory hypoxemia, in ARDS patients, for example, we know that ARDS is a heterogeneous disease and that certain lung segments are going to be more affected than others. And as you think about these patients, they have a fair amount of shunt physiology, and we need to help kind of recruit more alveoli, if you will, to help improve this shunt physiology or change the VQ um, uh, matching for our patients' lungs. And so By giving inhaled vasodilator therapy, we know that they'll reach the normal lung more than the diseased lung. It'll recruit blood flow to functional alveoli and decrease your shunt fraction and thus um, improve your hypoxemia, and it'll attenuate regional hypoxic vasoconstriction. And so this is just a a, a graphic that I like to to use um, from Thorax from a long time ago, just showing that your diseased alveoli is going to get less of the inhaled vasodilators, you give it to them, and you'll get less vasodilation of that capillary associated with that diseased alveoli and more related to the alveoli that versus IV um, vasodilators, which will non-selectively dilate all the capillaries. And so it's very important that in these patients, we think about kind of inhaled vasodilators for refractory hypoxemia, knowing that it doesn't necessarily change mortality, but it gives us some time to help with their oxygenation and their hemodynamics. And when we're thinking about the parameters that we want to target, the PF ratio, the A gradient, and then the hemodynamics, specifically the, the um, SVO2, the mean PA pressure, cardiac output, or the CBP, we want to aim for a 15 to 20% increase in these numbers with time. And so we're mainly using, here at Maryland, we're mainly using um, uh, inhaled process for this for this purpose. Prone positioning is another strategy to use, and, and that's because We know that ventilation strategies can result in atelectasis in the dependent regions of the lungs, resulting in increased shunt and worsening hypoxemia. And so when we think about prone positioning, we know that there might be some, some, I guess, multifactorial reasons why we get improved oxygenation, including potentially increased end-expiratory lung volume, regional changes in ventilation, and better VQ matching. And when we think about what happens in these patients, the heart becomes um, dependent and the diaphragm is displaced you get decreased posterior compression of the lung parenchyma. And so if you think about kind of blood flow and ventilation and the fact of that VQ matching, you basically get improved ventilation and oxygenation by putting a patient in the prone position. And this was a, the seminal paper by um, uh, Gatnoni et al. Um, that basically showed that you get this improved aeration um, as you make the heart be um, dependent and allow the, the lungs to aerate better. And then the Proceva study that was published in 2013 um, with this Kaplan-Meier curve showing the, the, um, the difference between the prone and the supine group in regards to mortality. And so this is something that we are doing, um, all of us on this call are doing for patients with ARDS, um, severe hypoxemia in centers without other salvage therapies and with experience in using prone positioning and using it a lot in the last year and a half with our patients with COVID pneumonia. And the last slide I'll share with you is is this one, which is ECMO. And and I think that this one, um, we all know that it's indicated for severe but potentially reversible respiratory failure. And I'm sure that this will be covered in a future talk.